0: Hello, and welcome to a special ABI podcast looking at some of the recommendations of the ABI Commission on Consumer Bankruptcy, aimed at improving access to the bankruptcy system for financially distressed consumers. Specifically, we'll be talking about the recommendations focused on the credit counseling and financial management course requirements and means test revisions and interpretations. My name is Randall Dunn a retired United States bankruptcy judge for the District of Oregon, a former member of the Ninth Circuit's Bankruptcy Appellate Panel, and a member of the Commission. The Commission was charged by ABI's Board of Directors at the end of 2016 with recommending positive changes that could be implemented within the existing bankruptcy system. It was comprised of 22 commissioners and three committees looking at areas to improve the consumer bankruptcy system. The Commission was broadly representative geographically and by area of practice, including creditors lawyers, debtors lawyers, trustees, judges, and academics. This was a group law reform project. The report does not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, including today's panelists, but We worked on consensus where possible, and nothing was recommended without at least two-thirds support of the members of the Commission. Our final report was issued on April 10, 2019, and is available at consumercommission.abi.org. Joining me on the discussion today are three of my fellow Commissioners. John Rao is an attorney with the National Consumer Law Center, Inc., in Boston, where he focuses on consumer credit, mortgage servicing, and bankruptcy issues. He frequently appears as a panelist and instructor in bankruptcy and consumer law, education programs and conferences, and serves as an expert witness in court cases, having testified before Congress on bankruptcy and mortgage servicing issues. Ariane Holslag is a partner with the law office of William J. Factor Limited in Chicago. Her practice is focused primarily in the field of consumer bankruptcy and is divided among representing trustees, debtors, and creditors in Chapters 7 and 13. She also represents individuals and small businesses in Chapter 11, and she has been honored as a member of ABI's 2018 40 Under 40 class. Wendell J. Shirk is a solo attorney with Shirk Law in St. Louis and represents consumers, businesses, debtors, and creditors. He also represents bankruptcy trustees. He is the Missouri co-chair for the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys, as well as a member of the American Bankruptcy Institute and the Missouri Bar Association. And he contributes to the BankruptcyLineAtWork.com blog. And now let's turn to our discussion. Access to bankruptcy, uh, is a very interesting question, uh, particularly of interest since enactment of BAPCPA in 2005. And the recommendations we're going to discuss today are somewhat different based upon the, uh, subject matter we're covering. Uh, our first topic, uh, relates to the pre-petition credit counseling requirement and the financial management course requirement uh, for obtaining a discharge. Uh, The Commission's recommendation with regard to credit counseling is quite straightforward, that the credit counseling requirement be eliminated. Uh, Ariane, why don't you explain to us uh, how uh, that recommendation recommendation evolved, uh, both in the Chapter 7 Committee and at the Commission level?
1: Certainly, Judge Dunn. Thank you. So, as we all know, the credit counseling requirement was added to the Bankruptcy Code in 2005 as part of BAPSEPA, and basically the rule requires that an individual complete a credit counseling course within the 180 days uh, prior to filing her case. Um, And so, basically, the requirement is a gateway. Uh, that everybody has to go through in order to be eligible for for whatever chapter they decide to file under. And as you know, Judge Dunn, we conducted uh, open hearings where members of the bankruptcy community could present issues and discuss topics uh, with the commissioners that they would like the commission to address and how they would like the commission to treat these topics. And this was one, uh, the the credit counseling requirement and what to do about it was one of the things that, in, in my anecdotal experience, was that we, it was almost uniform uh, throughout the people that presented to the commission, uh, finding that the credit counseling requirement has not furthered the goals you know in general i think the feeling was with congress when they passed this requirement was that more education to to educate debtors before they file for bankruptcy about what the alternative options would be what else they can do you know more education was seen as a good thing to maybe help dissuade people from filing bankruptcy that didn't need to be there but you know, the professionals, academics, you know, everybody, the judges, you know, everybody that came to present to us, it it seemed almost universal that that's not what anybody was seeing, that they're seeing an increased expense for debtors um, that, you know, impacts access to justice. Uh, They're seeing time delays, which again impacts access to justice, uh, and that really those costs were being imposed with very little benefit. Um, In the report itself, um, our reporter cited to some cases showing that something like 85% to 90% of folks who complete the course go ahead and file bankruptcy anyway, and there's reason to believe that the numbers are actually much higher than that. And so the idea is that the credit counseling requirement is just coming into these folks' lives much too late, that the damage has already been done, the bankruptcy is inevitable at this point, and so really... Um, the requirement isn't furthering those original goals about educating the public. Uh, And so it's really just creating a barrier with no benefit. Uh, And so that was sort of, I mean, so this one was, I think, sort of an easy one for the commission because, You know, judges are so uniform or have been so uniform. Um, Practitioners are so uniform. I mean, really, everybody that presented to us was pretty uniform in saying that there was a big barrier here um, and and that for very little benefit.
0: In addition, of course, uh, we looked at academic research in the area, and this is one of the uh, issues where there's quite a bit of uh, academic research and writing and the universal uh, findings from that research is that uh, the credit counseling uh, requirement was not doing what uh, uh, at least the intent expressed in the legislation uh, wanted it to now with uh, any other comments
1: no i mean i think that's long the short of it and so the commission i mean i think it was resounding Um, you know agreement that that this precondition should be abolished
0: right Wendell our recommendations with respect to the financial management course requirement uh, are somewhat different oh uh, do you mind explaining what they were and how we got there both in the chapter 7 committee and at the Commission level
2: Sure, thank you, Randy. um The recommendation we came to was um a little more nuanced um, There was more um interest in retaining the financial management course um expressed at multiple levels and um we found we we felt that it wasn't serving much of a purpose in the chapter seven world um because um, they're already going to be receiving relief um, at the for their uh, uh, debts by um, very quickly, and it was simply serving as a, a hindrance to uh, a fresh start um, to make this a requirement, however, there was some anecdotal evidence to suggest that it could be beneficial in a chapter, chapter 13 environment where a debtor is committed to three to five years of, of maintaining a budget and making monthly payments to a trustee on a uh, on a pretty consistent basis. Um, so we felt like retaining it for 13s was a valuable um, tool to potentially help them complete their 13s and then receive their fresh start um, in the form of, of a discharge. Um, and we also the other thing that we looked at was the possibility of encouraging Congress to amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act in order to report um, if the if a um, credit report does include information about the debtor's bankruptcy then create a carrot for them to complete these education programs by giving a note on that credit report that says they did this and that way use a carrot to encourage people to get the education hopefully it will be useful to them and if the industry believes that it is useful to them then it can reward them by giving them better credit in the long run um, which is certainly of interest to most consumers completing bankruptcy.
0: Right. We we would hope that this market-based recommendation would actually have a positive effect in terms of increasing uh, debtors' credit scores for the future. Any other comments with respect to either credit counseling or the financial management course requirement? All right, hearing none, uh, we're going to move on to the second topic, where the commission recommendations uh, fall along very, very different lines. Uh, Just as a little background, under the uh, bankruptcy code as adopted in 1978, there was no insolvency requirement to file. Uh, But by 2005, with uh, BAP CPA, Congress uh, had made a policy determination that debtors who could pay some or all of their debts should pay, uh, resulting in their grafting the means test into the bankruptcy code. Now, at the commission level, uh, there were lively discussions on the efficacy of this provision, but ultimately, uh, the commission's determination was that we ought to try to work within the framework of the existing means test and improve its administration and, if possible, uh, make its application fairer in the bankruptcy context. Uh, There are a number of specific recommendations in this area, uh, and I'm going to uh, turn to uh, John first uh, for his take on the commission recommendations with regard to debtor documentation requirements in Chapter 7.
3: Thanks, Judge Dunn. Um, As Judge Dunn mentioned, one of the things that the Commission tried to focus on with the means test, rather than eliminate it completely, was to look at things that were required, particularly those that were increasing the cost of bankruptcy filing, but really were, were not benefiting anyone in the system. And so one of the areas that we focused on was the 2005 amendments uh, that particularly increased the cost of consumer filing because of the requirement to calculate uh, current monthly income for purposes of the means test and the collection of related documents. And we focused on that because at the same time, uh, BAPSEPA also created a safe harbor for for debtors who were below the median income in their state, and basically said for those below median debtors that they would not be subject to the additional scrutiny of the means test. The problem was though that the cost of entry into the system to prove your safe harbor uh, status was it, it is currently initially the same for all debtors even if so even if you're ultimately going to be below median and not have to fill out fill out the whole means test form you still had to calculate cmi and collect all the documents and we looked at whether or not there were ways to uh, reduce the costs related to that the other thing i should mention is that the studies um, that um, were done about the means test a number of them suggest that rather than pushing um, more higher income debtors into Chapter 13, the effect has been more to uh, prevent lower income debtors from from filing at all because of the increased costs of of bankruptcy filing. So, with that in mind, the Commission considered whether there are ways to, um, to, uh, you know, again, reduce the course for those approximately 90 percent of Chapter 7 debtors who are below median income in the current system, and approximately 70% of Chapter 13 debtors who are uh, should are in this uh, safe harbor and, and for Chapter 13 purposes don't have to calculate their disposable income based upon the means test formula. So there were two recommendations that were made. One was to provide, uh, to allow the debtor to, to provide, uh, or to provide for the debtor different options for income verification other than the current requirement of, uh, of producing and filing 60 days of payment advices. Um, in particular, the the, uh, the the primary one that we think would probably be most used if it were adopted would be to say that the debtor could submit one or more payment or pay, pay stub or payment advice uh, that was w- recent within the past 90 days that has a year-to-date income figure on it. And that would be sufficient rather than having 60 full days of of payment advices. Um, And of course, we also uh, put in this, um, the ability for the US trustee, if there was reason to believe that that may not be accurate in some way, that certainly the US trustee could ask for additional information. But at least initially, simply the filing of that document, and we listed uh, several other documents that also could be substitutes for the 60 days of payment advices. But probably the bigger uh, or uh, more significant suggestion or recommendation was um, to eliminate the calculation of current monthly income for those below median debtors. So if the income that would be reported on schedule, on the schedules, the bankruptcy schedules, schedule I in particular, um, based on that income ver- verification I just showed, shows that the debtor is below median income, then they would not need to calculate the current monthly income as the, as everyone currently needs to do in the system. And um, the, 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 this is a, this is really a big, could potentially be a big issue because right now the reason why it's so costly to calculate that cmi is that the attorney needs to go back uh, all the consumer attorneys are very familiar with this you need to go back for the six month period and you have to collect all the income information for that six month pre-petition period and um, it has to coincide with the filing date of the petition the problem is that debtors don't always get all their documents in at the same time they may be also um, trying to collect money to pay their attorney so the filing date often can be a moving target and every time it changes the debtor's attorney needs to go back and collect more information the other thing is that you know particularly when you have a married uh, couple filing um, two spouses they if they're both working uh, you've got uh, more income information to collect, and, and for many low-income debtors, they have may have more than one job. Each debtor may have several jobs. This this really increases the cost of filing. So I think our suggestion would go a long way in, if it were adopted in reducing the cost of, of bankruptcy filing.
0: I totally agree with you. Any other comments? All right, hearing none. I'll. Another area where the Commission made recommendations was in the interpretation of the special circumstances language included uh, within the means test provisions. Uh, Ariane, you want to explain what we perceive to be the problem and the recommendations that the uh, Commission made in that regard?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Judge Dunn. So, the the overall result. let's start with the results, uh was that and and this is actually one I think one of the more interesting uh conclusions of the commission because this is one that doesn't require a statutory change. This could be done implemented from the bench, you know, by by you know, attorneys bringing this to judges and establishing law because this is an interpretation recommendation. Uh, So the conclusion of the commission was that courts should interpret Section 707B2BI to permit a debtor to establish special circumstances for purposes of rebutting the presumption of abuse, even if the obligation at issue was incurred voluntarily. Uh, And then we do also recommend that Congress uh, should pass a clarifying amendment to that effect. But certainly this is something that could be, you know, this is a judicial interpretation of the existing statutory language that's out there now um, and so could simply be adopted from the bench. So, so the issue is this. So we all know um, we have this means test. Right. And, and so if a debtor's income, uh, less deduction, certain enumerated deductions is above a certain threshold a presumption of abuse arises uh, and would allow a court to dismiss a Chapter 7 case um, because it would then be understood to not qualify for Chapter 7 relief. Though there is sort of a statutory catch-all in the form of uh, special circumstances. Uh, And so basically what the code provides is that to qualify as a special circumstance, uh, the debtor must be able to justify that additional expense um, as something for which there is no reasonable alternative. And the code does give a few uh, limited examples of what that might be, such as a serious medical condition um, or a call or order to active duty of the armed forces. Now the the issue that we've run into in the courts, the split, the issue that's out there right now is whether any expense to which there's no reasonable alternative would qualify as a special circumstance. Or some, some courts have noted that those enumerated examples um, are both involuntary. And so at least one court ruled that in order to be a special circumstance, Um, uh, An obligation has to be involuntary. And so one big example that the commission considered when reaching this was the issue of student loans, uh, uh, which, you know, there was a whole separate podcast on the student loan recommendations that talked quite a bit about you know, the, the plight of, of student loans in this country. I mean, I think they said something like one in five Americans have a student loan. Um, student loans are having all these uh impacts on on people and delaying things like home ownership and, and really dragging down the economy overall. So it's having a lot of individual impact as well as impact on the American economy. And so addressing student loans was was certainly one of the main thrusts of the commission. And this is one sort of small way. So the example that we were looking at with student loans, could a student loan payment, you know, debts are typically not something that you take a deduction for on the means test. Um, But the idea is that a student loan being non-dischargeable presently under the law, would that continuing obligation be a special circumstance? And at least one court has said no, because you voluntarily incurred that debt. And so it's not, um, it's not in keeping with these other enumerated examples. Um, But then there are other courts, you know, there's at least one other court that says there's no reasonable alternative to paying a student loan. You know, it's non-dischargeable. You can't get out of it in bankruptcy. You've got to make these payments. You know, the only option would be to defer it, which would cause interest to continue to accrue and things of that nature. And so it's not really reasonable uh, to expect uh, a debtor to do that. Um, And so basically what we as the commission are saying here is that it's the the latter interpretation saying that, you know, deferring is not a reasonable option, saying that just because it was a voluntary incurred expense uh, doesn't mean that it can't be a special circumstances. Um, So that's the, the that's the commission's position on special circumstances, and certainly if, if Congress could get around to adopting language to that effect, that would be very helpful. Um, but I think it's one of the recommendations that the Commission put out there that can be adopted now um, through judicial means, and I think that's excellent.
0: And you know, once again, to underline, uh, the voluntary versus involuntary all uh, payment bifurcation or debt bifurcation is not something that's required by the special circumstances language of the statute. And it bothers me in a sense, because if you're judging or determining whether a debtor is going to be eligible for bankruptcy based on whether the obligation was voluntary or involuntary, it seems to me you've entered the realm of moral judgments, which I don't think uh, is ever an area that uh, a bankruptcy judge ought to tread upon. Uh, but, uh, you know, the student loan uh, example is is a good one. I mean, one of the big problems we have at the present time with student loan defaults is that large student loan debts incurred for graduate school uh, are difficult, if not impossible, to discharge, and there are big default rates with regard to those loans. The uh problem for the debtor is that when the loans were incurred, the very expected graduate school would go great, they get out, get a wonderful high paying or prestigious or both job, and be able to pay the student loan. And it just hasn't happened. It was a voluntary decision, but uh should the debtor be stuck with a non dischargeable obligation uh for the rest of his or her life, uh because that decision was made in some sense voluntarily. And finally, as a matter of policy, Uh, if you interpret special circumstances to exclude voluntary incurred debt, there's a real disconnect between consumer debt and business debt. Uh, Bankruptcy code allows uh, business debts uh, to be discharged, no matter whether they were incurred Voluntarily or involuntarily. And if you've got a debtor entering into a small business, uh, uh, they think it's going to be wonderful, whether that belief was uh, realistic or not. They do it. Uh, the business fails. Uh, and the question is whether there's going to get a discharge that would allow the debtor to move forward and get a fresh start, which it's that type of risk taking the free enterprise system. Encourages and uh, not to allow discharge of those debts that were voluntarily incurred uh, would uh, preclude uh, debtors potentially from picking themselves up and rejoining the economic race. Uh, the same should apply with regard to consumer debtors. I see no reason for a bifurcation in the interpretation. any other comments yeah
3: i would i would this is John and I would just quickly add that um you know i think at least in my view i think what congress had in mind for special circumstances was something that is occurring at the time the petition is filed the circum, the special circumstances should be current present so looking back and saying you know you you involuntarily incurred a student loan 10 years before you filed should be irrelevant it's a present current test um, and that's what should be considered
0: All right, any other comments? All right, moving right along. Uh, We made recommendations with regard to best interpretation of CMI for unemployment benefits. Uh, John, you wanna go over the issue and what our recommendation entailed? Well, I I was going to
3: focus on the unemployment one, and I think Wendell, do you want me to start with the unemployment uh, recommendation first, Uh, Judge Dunn? Either way. Okay, why don't I start with that, and then I'll hand it over to to Wendell. So I'd be really quick with this one. Um, The Bankruptcy Code, based on the 2000 Amendment, exclude certain uh, types of income from current monthly income. It's right in the definition. And one of the exclusions is for benefits received under the Social Security Act. And that's the key sort of language the received under the Social Security Act. And this has generated uh, a fair amount of litigation since 2005, because the Social Security Act is very uh, uh, far reaching. There are a lot of Types of benefits that are directly uh, come directly under the Social Security Act, and then some benefits that are somewhat more indirect uh, that are programs that are administered by the state, but there's very much federal involvement uh, and they uh, originate, and certainly the whole framework for them is under the Social Security Act. Uh, But nevertheless, there's states that um, administer the programs. And so the perfect example of this is the unemployment compensation uh, benefits. Um, And it really is this sort of hybrid program, both federal and state. And uh, as a result, this has generated a fair amount of litigation about whether unemployment benefits are received under the Social Security Act. There's a split of authority on this, and uh, the commission sort of struggled a bit with this, but ultimately came to the view that um, this, this statute is, could, is is ambiguous, at least at, at, with respect to unemployment benefits. Um, there are good arguments to be made on, on both sides of this issue, but we ultimately think that the best interpretation, the commission uh, adopted the view that the best interpretation of the current law, so again, this would not require a statutory change, the best interpretation is to to is that the uh, unemployment benefits are received under the Social Security Act, and therefore they should be excluded uh, from current monthly income.
0: Anyone want to comment on that? I, I would just add for the practitioners who are listening to this podcast: this is a very complicated area, and. Uh, for just the reason that John states, because of the extensive possible coverage of the term benefits received under the Social Security Act. Uh, during my last year on the Ninth Circuit's bankruptcy appellate panel, we had this issue come up with respect to adoption assistance payments under the Adoption Assistance and Child Welfare Act of 1980, but was also within the rubric of the Social Security Act, uh, it was a program administered by the state. Uh, we looked at it. Uh, ultimately, uh, the decision in re Adonalfi 543-BR-612 was that the adoption assistance payments should be excluded uh, from calculation of disposable income uh, because they were benefits received under the Social Security Act this was not without controversy. Other courts had not agreed with us necessarily. Uh, there was a dissent, which is uh, fairly infrequent at the BAP. And uh, I can report happily with regard to the decision, since I was in the majority, that uh, it was not appealed uh, further to the circuit. Uh, but all you've got out there is the BAP decision. Any other comments? Wendell, you want to go ahead and discuss the uh uh recommendations with uh, regard to oh, let's see.
2: Well we can refer to them as social security analogs, I think. Right. Um Thank you. <laughs> the um the the issue we were confronting is that one oh one ten A provides perhaps perhaps unintentionally a Systemic discrimination against um, debtors who are receiving benefits that typically flow from the government um, but are not Social Security but are intended to be similar to them and um, in many cases take the place of Social Security. And debtor attorneys see this um, on a very routine basis. You have a elderly debtor who is um, still employed, may have a small part-time job, but is also receiving Social Security benefits, either disability or uh, more likely retirement. And under current CMI, only the wage um, counts as current monthly income, which means that she very likely will qualify as a Chapter 7 debtor, or if she chooses to go into a Chapter 13, would only have a three-year commitment period. Um, However, same debtor, same part-time job, but receiving her benefits under the Railroad uh, Retirement Act um, because of a small job that she had with the airlines um, years ago. Um, In that scenario, both the wage and the RRB benefits count and she could very well be forced out of Chapter 7 and if she files a chapter 13 be required to uh, commit to a five-year repayment plan. Um, Although essentially they're the same thing because railroad retirement benefits are substituted for social security. Um, And this happens with teachers, um, uh, many government employees, and veterans in particular. Um, Even though all of those options that either take the place of or supplement what you have out there from Social Security are functional equivalents of them and um, typically have uh, similar or even identical protections um, from assignment or levy. So in order to level the playing field between similarly situated debtors we recommended that these analogs also be excluded from CMI to the same extent that they would be excluded if they came from Social Security. But we also recognized that those benefits sometimes exceed the Social Security benefits. For example, a railroad retirement um, pension plan will pay at least two tiers of benefits one tier is explicitly matching social security but there's another tier that they often receive and sometimes even a third that are additional funds being paid out that are essentially their private pension benefit and we didn't want to give the person receiving a social security analog a step ahead either um, on this playing field so we recommended that this exclusion be capped at the maximum of their social security benefits, which currently would be two thousand seven eighty eight and adjust for inflation each year.
0: Uh, any other comments? I would just note that this is one area where there appears to be legislation moving that would implement uh, at least in part uh, the recommendation of the commission and that's with respect to VA disability payment benefits. All uh, my understanding uh, and anybody on the panel can correct me if I'm wrong but uh uh that uh, a provision uh to make a VA disability benefits or uh, excludable like social security benefits uh the Haven Act was passed in the Senate and attached to a must pass a defense appropriation bill for fiscal 2020. So that was very positive. It went to the House, and my understanding is, as of today, uh, the House Judiciary Committee passed uh, Haven Act legislation uh, out of committee, and we would hope it would be non-controversial for ultimate passage. All right. One of the areas uh, that has generated a lot of activity and controversy is the question uh, under the means test of how to apply the national and local standards. Uh, and the Commission looked at this topic and came up with some recommendations. And I wonder, Wendell, if uh, you could outline the problem for us and uh, uh, discuss the recommendations that the Commission made.
2: Sure. Um, when we have calculated the CMI we move on to um, for above median debtors figuring out what allowed deductions they can take on the means test and the broad categories that we looked at here were the national and local standards that were brought over from the IRS Um, in in our context, the national standards are kind of broad core necessity things like food, clothing, um, personal care items, those those sorts of things that everybody has um, typically um, in their budget. And we felt generally that we agreed with the U.S. Trustee's current approach of treating those as allowances in other words whether or not their budget showed that they spent as much as the IRS would give them um on a monthly basis they should be allowed that as a deduction um in part i think uh, i think we would all kind of agree that the IRS is not going to be handing out um, allowances willy-nilly, and those numbers are probably reasonable and long-term expenses for most people. On the other hand, the local standards um, are more complicated and they're they're narrower, focusing on housing and trans- transportation costs based on where you live. And and courts have been more split on whether these amounts should be allowed as allowances or capped based on what a debtor actually spends Um, and the supreme court kind of ducked that issue in the ransom case in 2011 Um, and the differences can be dramatic and and create some loopholes that can be exploited for example in my district a family with two cars um, both with debts on them gets essentially $1,400 a month for transportation deductions um, between ownership and maintenance costs and those kinds of things. Um, And that would actually go down by $508 in the Chapter 13 if one of the cars is paid off, Um, meaning there are 508 reasons to take out a title loan, for example, before filing. And that um, left us with the option of uh, manipulating the means test to potentially um, have money flowing into the debtor's back pocket rather than paying creditors where it it could otherwise go. Um, So we felt that that number should be capped at their actual expenses. Um, And we also added the recommendation that those deductions um, in the secured categories generally need to be for reasonably necessary assets um, rather than um, allowed to be spent on acquiring non-necessity items. The Luxury vehicle, extra car, or um, the second home that that has no real purpose other than vacationing, um, because that creates um, a disincentive to really manage your financial affairs reasonably in the first place, and and puts those people on a on a Separate tier from the typical consumer has already made as many cuts as they can and is still facing bankruptcy
0: Uh, other comments All right hearing uh, no other comments in that area. There's one other area uh, with respect to the means test that the Commission reviewed and uh, that was the question of Should the means test uh, be applied? uh, in converted cases Uh, Ariane, you want to explain the issue and uh, what the Commission's recommendations entailed?
1: For sure. So the issue here is that uh, Section 707B applies, and the language here uh, is important. So it applies uh, to a case filed by an individual debtor under this chapter, meaning Chapter 7, whose debts are primarily consumer debts. And so the issue here is, when a case is converted from 13 to seven, is it a case uh, filed under this chapter uh, such that the means test still applies, um, which is provided for in 707B? Now, there's a split here, and so this is another one of these commission issues that can be resolved from the bench, can be resolved by judicial interpretation, and doesn't necessarily require um, a congressional action. So basically, we've got to split amongst the courts again. So we've got some courts that take a very literal approach to that language, uh, overly literal, really, uh, and says that a, a case that's converted wasn't literally uh, filed under Chapter 7. And so therefore, um, the means test doesn't apply. Now, there's a lot of, of courts that have gone the other way for a variety of reasons. And the, the main one is that Section 348A um, expressly states that when you convert a case, um, it constitutes, it then constitutes an order for relief under the chapter to which the case is converted. So that language would mean that a case converted from seven is a case, then filed under Chapter 7. Um, So you can still take a literal approach, still not go beyond the language, um, but relying on that additional language in 348a, uh, find that it is a case filed under that chapter effectively. Also, some courts point out that other sections wouldn't make any sense uh, to read it any other way. Uh, For example, a federal rule of bankruptcy procedure uh, 1019 extends the time uh, for objecting under 707b in a converted case. Now, if 707b didn't apply in a converted case, why would you need an extension of the time frame? So again, that's not dispositive, but it's just another indicator uh, of, of the intent uh, for it to apply in a converted case. Um, and and then I think more practically, I think a thing that we all sor- sort of resonated with many of the commissioners is just the absurdity of such a large loophole of allowing debtors to just fi- you know that wouldn't otherwise qualify qualify for seven uh, to file a thirteen, stay there for a while, and then convert and then poof, uh, you know you don't have to comply uh, with the gatekeeping you know mechanism of, of the means test and that it felt like that's a means test. Now if you could prove. Uh, that someone was doing that intentionally, a debtor was doing that intentionally. It might be grounds for dismissal otherwise, but in general, allowing that sort of conduct was seen as, as a loophole. And so the the commission's recommendation, therefore, was that the interpretation that 707B does apply in a converted case uh, was adopted and, and that's certainly an interpretation that can like I said be made from the bench uh, and doesn't require a congressional change. Now the second issue there then is when does the means test apply? So if it's going to apply in a converted case, is it as written, uh, When, i.e. when um, the case was originally filed in the six months preceding as we've already discussed in, so far in this podcast, or does it apply on a on a rolling basis such that the six-month look-back period would be from the point of conversion? And I think the idea behind those that like the idea of a rolling means test, so to speak, uh, is that, you know, there might be a change of circumstances. You know, you filed your 13, but then you lost your job kind of thing. Uh, but I think the idea was, and I think what the commission recommends is is not to do the means test on a rolling basis. That as statutorily written, the means test will apply and it'll be the six months prior to filing. And I think the reason uh, that was ultimately adopted is that there is a mechanism for rebutting the presumption of abuse. And so if there has been some change in circumstances while the debtor was in 13, such that the six months that precede their original filing are no longer representative, that could be handled through that process. There's already a mechanism in the code for dealing with that, uh, and so we felt that that was sufficient to um, address any, uh, you know, inequity that would be treated by not doing it on a rolling basis. Uh, so yeah, the the commission's recommendation then was that it should the means test should apply in converted cases, and it should uh, apply for the six months preceding the original filing.
0: All right, comments from uh, any of the other panelists? Mm-hmm. Just in a uh, note of full disclosure, uh, in the materials, uh, in the Report, is the citation to Inray Collette, which was my case. And I looked at this issue, determined, in consistent with the Commission recommendation, that the means test did apply in converted cases, and also that it should be applied as of the original filing date. Uh, But I've always had questions, and this is just uh, an editorial comment. Uh, Typically, when a debtor files Chapter 13, they look at their disposable income, and they think they can perform in 13. And those represented by counsel, their counsels looked at it, and in coming up with a good, faith plan, they think the debtor's going to be able to perform. So debtors performing, then post-petition, something happens, and they aren't able to perform. They get sick, they lose a job, they get a divorce, uh, things that often happen to Chapter 13 debtors. And my concern, ultimately, is a matter of policy, and the commission uh, did not deal with this explicitly. Uh, is, okay, in those circumstances where you've got debtors proceeding in good faith um, and the original means test uh, calculations put them beyond uh, uh, the availability of Chapter 7 relief, uh, what do they do uh, in a converted case uh, if they can't satisfy the means test? Are they simply precluded the option of bankruptcy? Uh, and required to stay insolvent until the statute of limitations run, or what happens to them. So that's my concern. It's a policy concern, uh, just something to think about. Any other comments?
1: Well, I think Judge Dunn, in the in the scenario that you outline, they have the access to the process for rebutting the presumption of abuse where they can file a narrative description of why the means test isn't representative and then the U.S. trustee has an option, you know, to review that and to either allow it to go forward anyway or or, or not and object and have the case dismissed. And in my experience, you know, the U.S. trustee very rarely does that. If you can explain narratively the the issues. Um, that of why the means test isn't representative. And certainly, I think in a converted 13, you, you know, we all are aware of these things, you, know, you lose your job illness. I mean, we've all rattled them off. Uh, and I think the US trustee, you know, they're people too. Uh, and they understand these things. And so I think that rebuttal of the presumption of abuse process would be sufficient. Now, if somebody converts from 13 to seven, and can't enumerate even one factor that's changed, you know, then that might be a problem, but then maybe it should be a problem for those folks.
0: All right. Any other comments in this area? All right. That concludes our discussion of the relevant issues today. Uh, I want to thank uh, all of our panelists for joining me today in this engaging discussion, and thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. This and more than 200 other podcasts can be found in the newsroom at abi.org. Have a wonderful day.